you will open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. While you are uh, turning there, um, I'm battling a a cold and trying to hold on to my voice, so not uh, using it all that much. But um, when we finish this morning going through this passage, we'll have uh, one more song to sing, Psalm 1, in response. And I want us all to sing it as loud as we possibly can. (laughs) We are in 2 Peter this morning, chapter 2. We are looking at verses 1 to 3. And the subject of false teachers, uh, earlier uh, Aaron told me that with this cold, my voice sounds deeper and more authoritative. So maybe as we address false teachers today, we'll speak with authority. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We read, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So let's go to the Lord now and Father, your word teaches us that as we walk with Christ, there will be many battles that we have to face, many crosses that we have to bear. And among those crosses, among those battles, is the fight for truth, to uphold the purity of the gospel and to proclaim the word of God the whole counsel of God in all of its truth and in all of its glory, even when it is being opposed and even when it is being distorted. And your apostle warned the church in his day that just as there were false prophets in the days of the Old Testament, so also would this be a raging battle that would continue for God's people even in the new that there would be false teachers who are among us, who at least at one time had the appearance of a genuine Christian and who gained prominence as teachers. But in their greed and in their lust, they lead people astray. 
So, Father, I pray that as we consider this very real and sobering matter this morning, that you would teach us from your word that we are always one to be in defense of the truth. We are to not only proclaim it positively, not only tell the world of the good news of salvation, but we must oppose errors, especially when they are distortions of the Word of God. So teach us, Lord, what to watch for and how to stand firm, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1923, J. Gresham Machen published his book called Christianity and Liberalism, where he forcefully and persuasively argued that biblical Christianity and Protestant liberalism were altogether different religions. There was nothing in agreement between either one of them, and there was no fellowship that could exist between them. And the reason being, of course, is that everything, even remotely essential to biblical Christianity, liberalism denied. They denied the full deity of Christ. They denied the incarnation. They denied the resurrection. They denied the authority of the word of God. All while saying that they affirmed these things. They used the same language and infused within those words totally different meanings. We believe in the resurrection of Christ only insofar as it's understood as a spiritual resurrection. You see? They used the language, but they meant totally different things by it. And Machen, in his book, again, argued persuasively that these two things, liberalism and Christianity, were totally different religions. Now, I say that he argued his case persuasively because even the likes of a man named H.L. Mencken, who was a skeptic, a, a writer at the time, journalist, writer, skeptic, was thoroughly convinced after reading Machen's book that Machen was correct in his arguments against the liberals, even if Mencken himself did not accept the claims of Christianity. Mencken, in fact, said at one point of Machen's arguments against the liberals, he said, if Christianity is really true, as Machen believes, then the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, then it is true from cover to cover. So, Answering the liberals, Machen takes his stand upon it. 
and defies the host of Beelzebul to shake him. As I have hinted, I think that given his faith, his position is completely impregnable. Machen's book is an apologetic tour de force. It is a book that lays bare clearly all of the errors of Protestant liberalism. It clearly and unapologetically exposes the errors, which were errors being propagated most forcefully during his day. That was the raging battle, liberalism, and its influx into the churches. And that was the battle he chose to fight, and he did so clearly and forcefully. But at the end of the book, he writes briefly also about the duty of Christian men during such times. And, and by men, he's talking about all Christians. What is the duty of Christians as a whole when there are such battles raging over the truths of Christianity? I'd like to quote his words in full here. He says, in the first place, Christian men should encourage those who are engaging in the intellectual and spiritual struggle. They should not say, in the sense in which some laymen say it, that more time should be devoted to the propagation of Christianity and less to the defense of Christianity. Certainly, there should be propagation of Christianity. Believers should certainly not content themselves with warding off attacks, but should also unfold in an orderly and positive way the full riches of the gospel. But far more is usually meant by those who call for less defense and more propagation. What they really intend is the discouragement of the whole intellectual defense of the faith. And their words come as a blow in the face of those who are fighting the great battle. As a matter of fact, not less time, but more time should be devoted to the defense of the gospel. Indeed, truth cannot be stated clearly at all without being set over against error. Thus, a large part of the New Testament is polemic. The annunciation of evangelical truth was occasioned by the errors which had arisen in the churches. And this statement, especially that last one, is exactly right. I want you to think with me for a moment about all of the major doctrines that we find in the Bible, in Christianity. 
not a single one of them is taught apart from confronting errors. Every single one of them arises in confrontation with error. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is taught clearly and forcefully in response to the Judaizing heresies of the Galatian church. The doctrine of the resurrection of Christ is taught most fully, most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 in response to those who were denying the resurrection of Christ. You can think of something as well as personal as the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. That itself is taught most clearly, most forcefully in the book of 1 John in response to antichrists and those who were putting a front of being Christians while living continually in darkness. We have in the mornings on on Sunday mornings in Sunday school, we've been going through the doctrine of the Trinity. That is another key example. That doctrine was taught and confessed and articulated most clearly in response to the heresies that were arising among Christians in various churches where teachers were denying the full divinity of Christ. Virtually every part of Christianity is made known through a confrontation with error. Christianity, by definition, is confrontational because it confronts and opposes every falsehood that takes hold within the minds of men. There is no such thing as a purely positive proclamation or propagation of the gospel, lest you sacrifice and distort the truths of the word of God. Now, This, of course, certainly does not mean that you have a license to be reckless or to be hypercritical of everything. Even Machen warned about the dangers of being content with warding off attacks. Some people, that's all they want to do. They only want to fight about things, rather than, on the other side, having a positive proclamation of the gospel. So again, Machen is right. We ought not to be content with warding off attacks, but this does mean that confrontation will be inevitable whenever the way of truth is taught. There can be 
no right understanding of salvation apart from an understanding of judgment. There can be no understanding of the love of God apart from a right understanding of the wrath of God. There is no cross apart from judgment. There is no grace apart from repentance. And of course, there is no eternal kingdom of life apart from the reality of eternal damnation as well. The truth is very often more clearly seen in light of the errors that it confronts. And this is no different in 2 Peter. Chapter 1, as we've been going through this book, has largely focused on what we might call the positive aspects of the gospel. What God has done for us, what he promises to come in the future, and how our lives are to be ordered now. But of course, many of these positive aspects that Peter raises are raised in light of the threat of false teachers who are denying these very things. And as we move into these latter two chapters of 2 Peter, virtually all of it is what we might call the negative proclamation. It is confrontational. It is a defense of the Word of God and a warning against false teachers and those who follow them. And this morning, as we consider these first three verses of chapter 2, I want to draw your attention to six points about the threat of false teachers for the Christian. There are six of these. Don't fret. Usually I give you like two or three or so, and that takes up our time. We, we won't spend an equal amount of time on all six. Right? But I do have six things that I want to draw out of this text for you in regard to false teachers. We'll look at their presence, their work, their influence, their method, their perversions, and their end. So, number one, let's consider the reality of their presence. The presence of false teachers. Peter says, beginning in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter has, of course, just been speaking about the vital importance of the Old Testament for the Christian, the prophetic word. And using the Old Testament here as his point of departure, he makes this obvious observation. All throughout Israel's history, they were constantly plagued by false prophets. There were at times false prophets who prophesied in the name of other gods, like the prophets of Baal, whom Elijah had a confrontation with. But there were also at times prophets 
who claim to be prophets of the God of Israel, and yet were prophesying lies. God never sent them. And in every single case, these prophets led the people of Israel astray. They warned of judgment when judgment was not coming, and they promised blessings when judgment was coming. And the vast majority of people in Israel tended to listen to the false prophets. They were men who were self-deceived. They spoke, Jeremiah says, lying visions. No doubt, they probably saw things. They probably had dreams or visions that were deceptions, right? They could convince themselves as well. They, they speak from the, the thoughts of their own minds. They, no doubt many of them believed they were true prophets, but God had not sent them. And Peter says that this reality will still remain a reality for the people of God now. There will be false teachers, he says. And he doesn't mean here that false teachers will arise at some distant point in the future. You know, if you look down in chapter 2, verse 13, we find that they're already present among these Christians. He says they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. What Peter means here is that false teachers will always be around. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a moment in history when Christians are no longer faced with the presence of false teachers. And therefore, we ought not to be surprised when we see them. I think Christians sometimes can get a little alarmed or surprised or discouraged by the presence of false teachers as if it's some indication that things have become far worse than they ever were before. Again, we have to remember, this was 2,000 years ago. Peter was speaking about the presence of false teachers and that they would continue among the church until the return of Christ, essentially. This battle is nothing new. And I think it's worth being reminded that we ought not to let our guards down. I think oftentimes many Christians prefer to avoid confrontation altogether as if that's even really a possibility. But again, Peter is stating here very clearly that false teachers will be present and so the real possibility, in fact, the inevitability even of confrontation should just be understood as a given in the Christian life. Now, second, let's consider their work, the work of false teachers. What is it that false teachers do? What makes them false teachers. 
Peter says again in verse 1, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So first, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, heresies in the historical use of the word typically refers to some point of doctrine that is being twisted, right? So a denial of the divinity of Christ, for example. A denial of the doctrine of the Trinity is another example. These are historically referred to as heresies. But in Scripture, the word heresy has a much more broad meaning to it. It can refer to a a sect or a party. So the Pharisees are called a a heresy of, of the Jews. The Sadducees are a heresy. They're a sect. They're a party. They have a whole set of peculiar doctrines and practices. It can also refer to divisions, which are the result of false teaching. And here in our text, it certainly includes these broader ideas. The false teachers subtly introduce teachings that create divisions by virtue of their distortions of the Christian message. And this is a point especially that's worth emphasizing. The defense of the Christian message is not what is divisive. Let me say that again. The defense of the Christian message is not what is divisive. Insisting on faithfulness and obedience to the Word of God is not divisive. What is divisive always is the introduction of new teachings that depart from Scripture. That's how divisions are created. One of the charges that Machen himself had to address in the early 20th century was this very accusation of being divisive. The Protestant liberals were saying that they wanted unity. They wanted to have fellowship with their fellow fundamentalists. There were disagreements, no doubt. Sure, they may not accept all of the truth claims of Scripture. Sure, they may be grossly departing from biblical and historical Christianity, but they still want to have fellowship. They still want to be united together. Isn't unity much more important than doctrine? Maybe you've heard that before. Doctrine divides. We need to just be united. And to this charge, Machen aptly demonstrated that it was not himself or his co-belligerents who were creating divisions. It was the liberal who was creating disunity by the introduction of their heresies 
into the church. And this same perspective is shared by the Apostle Peter. It is not those who defend Orthodox Christianity who create divisions. Otherwise, Peter himself would be guilty of divisiveness for warning about these false teachers. I mean, could you imagine that, our sort of same modern ethic being applied to Peter's letter here? The false teachers coming to the church and saying, the apostle Peter's just being divisive. He just called us waterless springs. That's offensive. He just said that I'm designated for condemnation long ago. How divisive is that? This is absurd. The defense of the truth of Christianity is never what is divisive, but it is rather the introduction of heresies that create these divisions. This is what they do. This is part of their work. This is what makes them false teachers. They sow divisions. They bring in teachings which are, Peter says, by their very nature, destructive. Destructive teachings. And I want you to notice also, they do so secretly. They are very much like traitors who were living in the midst of a fortified city. And at night, they go to the gate while everyone's sleeping and they let the enemy in. False teachers, particularly those with any influence, do not just come right out and renounce the faith. They're more subtle. They deceive with sophistry. They begin slowly by raising skeptical questions about very clear matters or by introducing new ideas here and there. Has God really designed marriage the way he has? Have we been doing this correctly all along? Is marriage only for a man and a woman? Or is this backwards? Subtle questions that chip away at the foundations of the faith. It's not hard to imagine as well the substance of the teachings that the false teachers were introducing among Peter's own audience. We see how they were twisting the word of God here. And we see it also in the closely related letter of Jude. They were turning the grace of God into a license for sin. You you can imagine how this this, this would work. Isn't the grace of God just so wonderful? He, He forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us of all of them. We are saved by faith. Even our future sins have been forgiven. He has freed us from condemnation. Which means you don't have to worry about sin anymore. Sin's not really that big of a deal. We all sin. 
Right? We all sin. Let us sin. That grace may may abound. They distorted the grace of God and turned it into a license for sin. And this is the very same kind of heresy that many false teachers still teach today. The tricks have not changed. Jesus just wants you to be happy, right? He wants you to know your love. He wants you just as you are. Perhaps you've heard that before. He wants you just as you are. Okay, maybe come as you are, but don't stay that way. (laughs) Repent and turn from your sin. He wants you as you are. Even if you're practicing sin, sensual immorality, again, that's okay. We all have our sins. You're forgiven. Everyone does it. These are all destructive, heretical teachings that are taught in the name of God that actually reject God. They reject His Word. But secondly, Peter says also that these false teachers deny the master who bought them. Now, when we get further down the end of chapter 2, I'll probably preach on whether or not someone can be truly saved and then lose their salvation. Because there's language in this chapter that is often referenced in support of that idea, including this very phrase here. But I don't want to go down that trail yet. So we're not going to go down that, that rabbit hole just yet. For now, let me just say, that's not the case, and focus on the main point of the phrase here. It is clear from 2 Peter that these false teachers are not of some other religion. These are not like false teachers of Baal, false teachers of Manichaeism, or any other pagan religion of the day. These are teachers that are identifying themselves as Christians. They have influence in the church as teachers of the gospel. Otherwise, they wouldn't be false teachers. They have opportunity to teach and to preach. They are, Peter says again, feasting still with Christians as Christians. And so when Peter refers to the master who bought them, He is describing the fact that they are publicly identified with Christ. Jesus bought them. They are his servants. He is their master. They are preaching in the name of. But what are they doing to their master? They are, Peter says, denying him. And they're not denying him with their words. Again, he's still their master. They are serving him. But they are denying him by their deeds. What they're doing. It's similar, in fact, to what the Apostle Paul says of false teachers in the book of Titus. He says there, Titus chapter 1, verse 16, he says... They profess to know God. They know Christ. They know the Master. They profess to know God. But they deny Him 
by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The point is that false teachers do not simply teach what is heretical as a matter of doctrine, as an idea. They virtually always do so as a justification for their own sin. That, that is what their work is. It is a perversion of Christian doctrine for the sake of a perverted life. No false doctrine ever facilitates or encourages godliness, holiness. The distortions of Christianity serve the purpose of denying the Lord by our works. Now, third, I want us to consider their influence. Their influence. On this matter, I just want to draw your attention to one thing. Notice what Peter says beginning in verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow them. This echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The influence that false teachers will have, Peter says, will not be a small one. It will be large. It will be noticeable. I would venture to say that true Christians should not be surprised when they find themselves in the minority. Heresy and wickedness can spread like leaven and rapidly leaven the whole lump. There was one point in the church's history when Trinitarian orthodoxy was not orthodoxy at all. The Arians who denied the full divinity of Christ were the overwhelming majority. And it was only because of the faithful Christians like Athanasius that the truth eventually prevailed. The ongoing battle against false teachers will often mean that we have to fight for truth against the majority. And especially in a more democratic society as our own, where everyone believes that truth is determined by what the majority believes, this will bring significant challenges. We must always remember, though, that our calling as Christians and the truths of Christianity are not determined by what the majority believe. 
As one man put it, if you have God on your side, you're always in the majority. Our calling as Christians is to be faithful to the word of God, even when the many are not. And even when the many have the majority and by virtue of their distortions of Christianity, the way of truth is ridiculed. When we see rampant ungodliness permeating churches and the unbelieving world points the finger to churches and Christians and says, look, the gospel and Christianity is no different from anything else. Everybody's doing the same thing. We ought not be surprised. Peter said that would happen. The way of truth will be blasphemed. But we remain faithful. We stand firm. We proclaim the truths of the gospel and we conform our lives to the word of God. And even if that light is small, we cause it to burn as bright as we possibly can. Fourth, let's consider their method. The method of false teachers. Their method of teaching is explained in verse Three, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The word for exploit there is a business term. In fact, in James chapter 4, verse 13, it, it really just refers to the, the buying and selling that you would do in a trade, making transactions, engaging in business. Here... It's as if these false teachers are being presented as uh, crooked businessmen. They're not honest. They deceive. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 23 says, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. Weights and scales were, of course, what merchants used to measure out a certain amount of product and sell it. But, of course, if you rigged those weights and rigged the scales to indicate that you were selling more product than you actually were, you could make a greater profit, but you would be doing so in a very dishonest way. And that's what these false teachers do. They're crooked businessmen who exploit unsuspecting customers. But the false balances that they're using are those of words. They lie, they make stuff up, they do so to benefit themselves. But what is it that motivates them to do these things? How could they possibly do such things with a clean conscience? Well, well, they don't do it with a clean conscience. Let me just <laughs> say that. It's a seared conscience. This leads to our next point, though, which is about their perversions. Notice again what Peter said in verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. 
And then in verse 3 again, and in their greed, they will exploit you. False teachers all throughout Scripture are not ever portrayed as just poor, unsuspecting victims of chance and circumstances. They are corrupt at the core. Many of them have insatiable appetites for sexual immorality and religion is corrupted as a means of feeding it. Some of us were talking, I think maybe just a, a week or so ago, about Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and how it was very much the case that he was a womanizer. And he just so happened to receive a revelation that said that polygamy was now okay. It is a man consumed by sensuality and he twisted things regarding Christianity to suit his own desires. It's not uncommon to hear of some high-profile celebrity preacher falling into disgrace because of some sexual sin. And many of these men often preached a soft, truncated gospel to begin with. Their hearts were already hardened against the Word of God, and their teaching was the fruit of what was in them. Peter also mentions greed here. Again, the, the ministry becomes a means of self-enrichment. This is what characterizes the prosperity gospel of today. It is driven by greed. All of the shenanigans, all of the absurdities, all of the crazy things that you hear proclaimed from these false prophets, these false pulpits, calling people to come and bring hundreds and thousands of dollars at the feet of the preacher or at the altar, and they'll receive some blessing. This is greed-driven false teaching that Peter warned would happen. The main point, though, is this. False teachers are not innocent. They are not helpless. They have wicked, perverted, and corrupted hearts. They have consciences that have been seared by habitual sin and rebellion. I think we sometimes, you know, we wonder out loud. I think we were having a conversation about this just yesterday, about how someone can twist the Word of God like people do. How can a preacher stand in a pulpit and say things that are so contrary to the Word of God? How does that happen? It happens because their hearts are corrupt and their minds are blinded 
by their own love of sin. It happens because men love darkness rather than the light because of their religion. There is nothing that is sacred to a heart that is hardened by sin. And so even the word of God is perverted to serve that sin. Lastly, Peter speaks here of their end. What comes upon false teachers? What is their end? It's judgment. Peter says at the end of verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, this point is going to be unpacked further as the chapter continues. And he's going to give examples of how even um, God's judgments, though they at times seem delayed, will inevitably come upon those who are corrupt. But it's worth stating here that no false teacher will go unpunished. And no one who follows them will likewise go unpunished. There is a judgment that is coming. And it is not just for all of the worst actors that we could think of. It's not just a judgment for the Hitlers, and for the Paul Potts, and for the Mao's. It is coming upon even those who claim the name of Christ. Even those who have, at least on the outside, some appearance of godliness, of religiosity. You remember the words of Jesus from Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. There's an outward profession. Jesus is my Lord. He's the master who bought me. There is an external appearance of submission to Christ. And yet what is their life characterized by lawlessness, disobedience to the master they proclaim they know. These are professing Christians, whether teachers or laymen, 
who claim the name of Christ, who sing of his grace, who call him Lord, and who are lawless. They don't turn from their sin, but they embrace it, and they continue in it. And Jesus says of such as these, and Peter says of such as these, that there will be judgment. So, I want to leave you this morning with one question and one charge. What kind of Christian are you? Are you the lawless type? This is one of those Apostle Paul-like self-examination questions. Are you the lawless type? Or are you the Christian who is repenting of your sin? That's a, a huge distinction to make. People like to say all the time, well, all Christians have sin. Christians have sin. We know that. Christians sin. But the distinguishing mark of a Christian is that they turn from their sin. They don't embrace it. They don't love it. They're not without it. But every time it comes to them, they hate it. And they repent. They should be known as repenters. What kind of Christian are you? Are you the one who hears the word of God, who knows what it teaches and does not do it? Or the one who hears the word and obeys it? And then as a final charge, as we are considering the reality of these false teachers, test everything. That's your charge. Test everything. Everything you hear. When we go through these books of the Bible, I want your Bibles open. And you test what is being said. You follow the line of reasoning. You follow the logic of the Word of God. When you hear something on an audiobook or a podcast, or a video, or from some teacher, you test it through the grid of the Word of God. The reality is that false teachers will always be among us. And many will follow them. So the external pressure to believe in some variation of false teaching will always be there. But what we are called to do is to again and again go back to the Word of God and test all things to see if these things are true. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we need the illuminating work of the Spirit. And as we read and study your Word, that you would show us who you are, what your will is, that you would teach us all of the glories, the truth of the gospel. Jesus said of all of those who 
belong to him that they shall be taught of God. And so, Lord, as you have given us a variety of means to be taught of you, whether that be preaching, teaching, whether that be most especially your written and preserved word, we do pray that you would teach us and that you would guard us from all errors, that as we live our own lives, as we walk together with Christ as a church, we would be a light that shines brightly with the truths of the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.